The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 11, 20, verse 27 through chapter 12, verse 12. The word of God speaks to us. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them to another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed and so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out to the vineyard. What will the owner, do? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is, the, this is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's really good to be with you guys again this morning as we, uh, as we continue on in our study in the book of Mark. For those of you that I have not yet had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we're continuing on looking at the tail end of Mark chapter 11 and then the beginning of chapter 12. And at first glance, what we read here sounds a lot like several of the other really contentious interactions that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day. We hardly got started reading in the book of Mark uh, when in chapter 2 Jesus healed a man who was paralyzed, and he did that by saying to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that really offended the Pharisees that were standing there. Then uh, a few verses later, he went and ate dinner with Matthew and a few of his tax gatherer friends, which again set off um, the religious leaders. By chapter 3, he had healed a man with a withered hand, but he did it on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees and the Herodians got together and began to plot how to kill Jesus. So we've seen many of these conflicts so far in Mark, and we'll continue watching them right up until um, the night before Jesus was executed at, um, at his trial. 
But there's something different about these verses today in chapter 11 that we need to take in. The religious leaders asked Jesus a question, and though their intentions were to trap him in his words, it actually is a really good question. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? So it's a question of authority, and it's a question that everyone present that day, except Jesus, needed to answer. See, uh, Caiaphas, the high priest, needed to answer that question. Who was it that was giving Jesus his authority? Was it God, or was Jesus just making this stuff up as he went along? Nicodemus needed to come to an answer to that question. Um, James, Peter, and John all needed to come to an answer for that question, too. It's a really big question. So let's pray now, and then we'll, we'll dig in and see what God has to say to us in these verses. Well, Father, uh, we're grateful for being able to come together this morning and look into your word. Help us, Lord, to go deeper than just our heads today. We pray that you'll speak to us in our inner person, Lord, that we can be changed and be made into the likeness of your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that that's, that's why we're still here. So we ask these things in his name for his sake. Amen. Well, um, the question that the religious leaders were asking that day was one of authority. And as we look at that question and talk about authority today, we're going to look at three different aspects of authority. Ultimate authority, delegated authority, and borrowed authority. So let's look first at, at ultimate authority. Ultimate authority asks the question, who has the final say here? So if you were in Cuba during the 1960s, the answer to that question on the surface might seem to be a dictator named Fidel Castro. At the same time period in China, the answer might have been a guy named Mao Zedong. Disagree publicly with either of those guys, and you simply disappeared. So it felt like that they were the ultimate authority in those places. Here in the U.S., the answer to that question um, is a little more complicated. For the last 40 years or so, in Christian circles, it's been pretty popular to talk about America as being founded as a Christian nation and then the founding fathers as being decidedly Christian. I think that's a simplistic way to look at things, and the truth is more nuanced than that. Um, there absolutely were a handful of Jesus followers that were among the people that signed the Declaration of Independence, just as there were a handful of atheists there too. But most of those people were neither atheists nor believers in Jesus. They were deists. And as deists, they believed that there was a God out there someplace, but that that God did not interact with people. Um, Remember Thomas Jefferson? Thomas Jefferson was an amazing guy. He wrote the Declaration of Independence. He believed that Jesus was a great moral teacher. But Thomas was so opposed to the idea that God would interact with people or that there was anything supernatural about Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection that, uh, that he took his Bible and he very carefully cut out everything that had anything to do with, with the miraculous in it, that um, he renamed it 
the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth, but it's commonly called the Jefferson Bible today. Now, this is what the original in the Smithsonian looks like, and you see that there's a lot of cutting and pasting going on there. Um, you can get your own copy from Amazon for 32 bucks if you want one. <laughs> uh, but the problem is that you can't do that with Jesus. C.S. Lewis wrote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either the man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, or kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. So the signers of the Declaration were seeking freedom from an oppressive king of England. So they weren't really interested in another king, either an earthly one or a divine one. They weren't even agreed on whether there was a God who could or would be ultimate authority. So the founders decided that ultimate authority in this nation should rest where? See? Um, if you read the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, it begins with these words, we the people. The founders divided up the ultimate decision-making process in this nation uh, between an elected Congress, an elected president, and an appointed Supreme Court. We the people, through our elected representatives, would be the ultimate authority here. But whoa, 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 you might say. Uh, what about our national motto, in God we trust? Did you know that that national motto didn't even come around until 1956 during the Eisenhower administration? Um, the only reason that that has held up to numerous court challenges uh, through the years is because the motto expresses, and I quote, ceremonial deism, that is, a repetitious invocation of a religious entity in ceremonial matters which strips the phrase of its original religious connotation. Folks, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel by a long shot. Well, if you haven't noticed lately, this representative form of government is, um, is kind of a messy affair. But in case you think that that messiness is something that just came along in our lifetimes, um, you need to read your American history. It's always been messy. Uh, it's been a while since we experienced in Congress uh, duels to the death with pistols or swords like they did in the early 1800s. Uh, it's been 160 years since we were so divided on a host of issues that we squared off with one another with cannons and rifles. Okay? Now, don't hear in what I'm saying ungratefulness for our country or for our form of government. There's a reason why there are five times more people trying to get into this country than are leaving this country. Uh, I love being here. I don't want to be anywhere else. But I also agree with what Winston Churchill had to say about our form of government. Democracy is the worst form of government. 
except for all the others that have been tried. <laughs> so I'm not saying this to be critical of our form of government, but just so we'll see that this we the people autonomy, which works pretty well in government, uh, it is not how things work in the kingdom of God. But American autonomy, see, it's the water that we swim in, it's the air that we breathe, and it influences how we try to relate to God. Um, we need to understand that whatever or whoever we may choose to be our ultimate authority, there is only one ultimate authority, which is the God of the Bible. Writing to the Roman church, the apostle Paul said, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, notice that, that Paul did not say that all governments are good or that all uh, laws are just. All he was, you know, he was writing to the Roman church who were at that time under the terror reign of Nero. Paul simply says that God is the ultimate authority and he institutes um, governmental earthly authority. We can elect or, or appoint whoever we want to, or I can even decide that I am the ultimate authority. But in the end, it will be proven that there is only one ultimate authority who is the God of the Bible. He's the one who created everything out of nothing and whose plans carry on from generation to generation. That's the real answer to the religious leader's question in uh, Mark chapter 11. Jesus, who gave you authority to do and say these things? God did. See, God did. But we finish chapter 11 with Jesus sort of sidestepping their question and giving them a question of his own. He asked about whether the baptism of John was from man or from God. And now they were hooked on the horns of a dilemma. If they said from man, then they were risking a riot and maybe their own lives because the people believed that John was a prophet. If they said from God, then Jesus' next question would have been, then why didn't you believe him? Um, so Jesus refused to answer their question because they refused his question. He dodged that, but then what he does is he actually answers it in the form of a parable. And that's the parable that we just read about the, um, the vineyard and the tenants. Well, in this story, we have a symbolic place, a vineyard, and some symbolic people. The man who, who built and owned the vineyard, the tenants, uh, the, the servants who came uh, to collect some of the produce, and then the son of the owner. So who are all these people, and what is this vineyard symbolic of? Well, the first person mentioned here is the man who designs and builds this vineyard, putting a fence around it, building a wine press and a tower. That The man in that story is a builder and a creator, and he's symbolic of God. As the man finishes all his preparations, he then leases the vineyard to tenants, which symbolizes what God did with the nation of Israel. He entrusted to them to represent him to the world. Well, that brings us to our second kind of authority, delegated authority. 
in this parable, God had leased out or delegated authority to tend and care for uh, the vineyard. He had given that to the nation of Israel. But this isn't the first time that we've seen God delegating authority. We can go much further back in time to the very beginning, and we can see him doing that. The first chapter of the first book of the Bible says, Then God said, Let us make a man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Before that verse, prior to that, God had been the one who had dominion over everything. But now he delegates some of that responsibility to the first man and the first woman. They were now responsible for caring for all the living things on the earth as well as for that beautiful garden. Now coming back to our parable, Jesus continues, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And then the story goes downhill from there with many other servants getting mistreated. Some they beat and some they killed. So who were these guys that were getting mistreated? They were God's prophets. God had sent prophet after prophet to the nation of Israel, and what had happened to them was exactly what Jesus described in this parable. Ultimately, in our parable, the owner of the vineyard, God, sends his own son. And we know, we all know how that ended on a Roman cross. One of the first deacons in the early church was a guy named Stephen. Just before the religious leaders of his day began stoning him to death, he delivers an amazing sermon retelling this parable to these leaders in real time. In Acts 7, we hear the conclusion of his message. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. In the parable in Mark 12, Jesus had again foretold his death, which would come in the future. Stephen was now describing it in flashback. It had already happened. So Jesus finishes the parable and begins to quote Psalm 118, which is a psalm that all of those religious leaders present that day would have had memorized. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. See, the stone that the builders rejected, literally they cast it aside as worthless or they just threw it away. That's the one that became the chief cornerstone. But chief cornerstone of what? Cornerstone of all that God is building. So Jesus has now changed metaphors on us. He was talking about a vineyard. Now he's talking about a building. Uh, both Peter and Paul pick up this uh, symbolism in their epistles, and they tell us really plainly what God's up to. Paul writes in his letter to the church at Ephesus, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together 
grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Peter, in his letter, calls us living stones. So God is building a temple, a house where he's going to live. Jesus is a chief cornerstone, and we are living stones in that structure. Well, we've talked before how the book of Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. Um, Mark doesn't waste words. See, he, he says what he wants to, and then he moves on immediately. He loves that word immediately, and he uses it twice as much as any other of the gospel writers do. So what Mark does in 16 chapters, Matthew takes 28 chapters to do. Um, this parable is no exception. So the, uh, Mark was giving us like the cliff notes on what Jesus said. Matthew gives us a lot more detail. Matthew tells us that after Jesus told the parable, he asked the religious leaders another question. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with those tenants? The religious leaders said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was God's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So Matthew tells us that before the religious leaders had caught on that that parable was actually about them, Jesus asked them a question, asked their opinion about how the tenant should be dealt with, and they pronounced their own sentence. The kingdom was taken away from them, and it was given to the church. It was given to us. Now, at first glance, it looks like that maybe God's plan to delegate authority, uh, to entrust others with his things, and to include others in his plans, um, it just doesn't work out. The first man and the first woman were given authority over the earth, and they, they squandered that. They gave it away. Israel, again and again, faith, uh, re, um, failed to faithfully handle that which God had given them and spent 2,000 years killing God's messengers to them. Ultimately, they rejected the Messiah, Jesus, and were therefore relieved of the authority that God had given them. It really all sounds pretty depressing. But let's look now at um, a successful delegation of authority. Philippians chapter 2 describes what Jesus laid aside when he came to the earth as a man. Um, it, it really is steps down as you, as you watch what happens in Philippians. tells us that he didn't need to hang on to equality with God. He was God. But he emptied himself and he became a man. And not just a man, but he became a servant. And not just a servant, but he experienced death. And as if it wasn't bad enough for the God who had created everything to experience death, he experienced death on a Roman cross, the most humiliating form of, of death that could be had at that time, naked, condemned, hanging, nailed up between two thieves. Jesus came to the earth as a man under authority. 
It took a Gentile Roman commander to actually see that when in Matthew 8 he said, I too am a man under authority. See, he saw Jesus functioning and went, wait, I know what you're doing. I'm a man under authority. You're a man under authority. He recognized authority when he saw it. Um, the father had delegated authority to Jesus, and he came with a specific mission. He would choose disciples, and then he would reveal the father to them. He would display God's power and his love by healing multitudes of people. He would preach the good news about the kingdom of God to anybody who would listen, and then he would die on that cross as a sacrifice for sin for the whole world. Now, we've talked about this before, but I think it's important for us to remind ourselves about the conditions of Jesus coming to the earth. In John 6, 38, he tells us that he had not come to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. He repeatedly said that his words were not his own, but they were the Father's words. And he said, I'm not doing my own deeds, but only the things that the Father is doing. See? Um, I'm going to paraphrase John 14. Jesus had just told his disciples uh, that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. And I can just hear Philip in his frustration saying, the Father, the Father, the Father, just show us the Father and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me? See, in a very real way, the disciples had never seen Jesus. Everything they had seen was an expression of the Father's love for them. He was, he was revealing the Father to them. Now, I can hear somebody say, yeah, yeah, but, you know, Jesus and the Father's will, Jesus' will, they were the same. <coughs> uh, Jesus um, expressing all, all of that was like um, Einstein doing simple math. You know, it wasn't hard for him to do that. Well, we only have to look at the Garden of Gethsemane to see that that's not true. In the garden, Jesus prayed, Father, I know that you want me to go that way. If there's any way possible, I want to go that way. But if not, then I want to go your way. See, that crossed his will in the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't the first time it had, but it, his will was being crossed there, and he chose the Father's way, and it cost him to do that. It says he sweat great drops of blood, and God the Father sent an angel to minister to him because of what he was going through there and what he would have to go through the next day. So Jesus was a man under authority, carrying out the mission that he was sent to do. Let's take, take a peek at what happens as a result of his obedience. Coming back to those verses in Philippians where we watch Jesus beginning as equal to God and then emptying himself down, 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 down into death. Listen to the next verse. Therefore, and any time you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what it's there for. See, it was saying, therefore, because Jesus had emptied himself down, 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 down. Because of that, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Jesus had been a man under delegated authority who carried out his mission to the end, and he was rewarded with a name that is above every name. And by the way, that's the definition of ultimate authority. If you're given a name that is above every other name, that's ultimate authority. After the resurrection, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, you go and preach the gospel. That's another delegation of authority. That's Jesus who has all authority now delegating us to go in his authority and preach the gospel. Well, let's quickly look at this last form of authority, borrowed authority. Borrowing authority can be described as trying to exercise authority in a sphere that hasn't been given to you. So you have to try and borrow authority from someone else. Uh, earlier in the book of Mark, we read about Jesus teaching in the synagogue. Mark 1.20 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So the people were astonished because they weren't used to hearing anybody teaching with authority. All they had heard before was, well, this learned rabbi thinks this, and this learned rabbi thinks that. But that's not what Jesus was doing. He was a man under authority. He'd been given a mission. He could speak with confidence and authority. He didn't need to borrow anyone else's authority. Maybe the best example of borrowed authority is found in Acts chapter 19. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So these, these Jewish exorcists were attempting to cast out demons with borrowed authority. See, they didn't actually have relational equity with Jesus at all, so they were trying to ride in on Paul's coattails. Now, I heard somebody say recently that if you go into a fight fully clothed, and you come back out bloody and missing your pants, it's pretty safe to say you lost that fight, okay? <laughs> they lost that fight. It didn't go well for them. Now, you might be able to get up and preach without authority, and all it'll be is boring. But if you try and tangle with a demon uh, with borrowed authority, it's, uh, it's not going to pan out for you. Okay, so where do we find ourselves in this story about authority? ultimate authority, delegated authority, and borrowed authority. It's important for us to hear the lesson here, not only for the scribes and Pharisees, or not only for the disciples, but also for us. Um, let's look for a minute at delegated authority. Have we been delegated anything? How about these verses from Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
So I can't imagine a clearer example of the delegation of authority than that of an ambassador. Ambassadors have been delegated authority from their home country to go and represent that country in another place. Now, those of us who have surrendered to that overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, we have been sent as ambassadors into the world to represent the kingdom of God. Our speech, our conduct, uh, the way we live out, our values, see, all of those are designed to demonstrate in real time to those around us what it means to be adopted into the family of God. How about those of us that are mom and dads? All of us with children have been delegated authority protect, to protect and to bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. As those children grow and mature, then we delegate some authority to them. Employers delegate authority to employees. Our world is full of delegated authority, and Paul tells us that we need to remember that all of that delegated authority flows out of God's ultimate authority. Well, those religious leaders in Mark 11 had asked Jesus an important question. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And like I said, everyone present there that day needed to answer that question for themselves. But you and I need to answer that for each of us too. Jesus, who is giving you the right to require of me the things that you're requiring of me? The conclusion that each of us comes to is going to not only have eternal ramifications for us, but it's going to set the trajectory for each of our lives here on the earth. See, who gets to say to us, I want you to live in that city. I want you to take that job. I'd like for you to speak to that person now. And leave them alone. I'm, I'm still working with them. See, who gets to call the balls and the strikes in our lives? Um, Am I singing, we won't move without you, we won't move without you on Sunday? And then the other six days of the week, I'm spending those living like an autonomous American. See, going all kinds of places that, that God isn't going. Now, I don't want to be harsh here, but if God is not calling the balls and the strikes in your life, then you're really living your life uh, like a functional atheist. That's the truth. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. What I am talking about is a heart that says, Jesus, you have all authority, and I want to submit to you all my plans, all my money, all my possessions, all my hopes and dreams. You, I was on the auction block and you bought me with your own blood. You have the right to tell me what to do from here. You know, there's a hundred metaphors in Scripture. You are the lover, and we are the objects of your love. Uh, you're the master, and we're the servants. You're the owner of the vineyard, and we're the tenants. You're the father, we're the sons and daughters. You're the potter and I am the clay. So the question still stands for each of us. Will we allow him to lead us 
and to shape us, making us into what he had in mind for each of us before any of us was yet born. See, made into the likeness of our elder brother, Jesus. Stand with me and let's pray. Father, we, we just want to stop and recognize that it is you who has ultimate authority in the earth. Lord, you have ultimate authority in our lives. And Father, we, we say that with our mouths, and yet, Lord, sometimes we don't live that with our lives. So, Father, we want to pray this prayer um, this morning that says, to whatever degree that isn't true in our lives, will you make it true? Lord, to whatever degree we haven't yet submitted ourselves to you, Lord, would you make that true in us? Father, I pray for, for all my brothers and sisters here, Lord, who have yielded themselves to you, who have, um, who have come under the love that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that we would all recommit ourselves to being ambassadors for you. Lord, that that, that would be our highest goal that there would be nothing that we would put above that. And Father, I pray for all my friends here who have not yet made that, that decision to follow you. And I just pray that, that you would open the eyes of everyone's heart, that Lord, all of us could see the surpassing value of submitting ourselves to your kind lordship. Thank you, Father. Father, we just want to give ourselves to you and ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, to whom belongs all glory and all praise and all power. Amen.